Well, I invite you to take your Bibles along with me, and let's turn to Revelation chapter 5. Our text this morning is the, the whole chapter. It's only 14 verses, so we'll read that together. encourage you to follow along in your own Bible. Revelation chapter 5, 1 through 14. We have a moment to turn there. Beautiful sound of rustling pages. Or the artificial sound on your swiping phone. <laughs> All right. Let's give our full attention to God's word being read. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll within and on the back, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Glorious scene in the throne room of heaven. Let's ask the Lord for help in this time. Father, it is a glorious thing that we get to look at your word like this. That you give us this glimpse of the throne room in heaven. Fathers, we seek to understand and apply it. We do need your help. We need your spirit to take this word which he has already breathed out and planted in us so that it brings the effect that you desire. 
first to make us wise to salvation for the unbelieving in the room, but also, Lord, to sanctify us, to make us more like Jesus in, in character. And it does that because this is your word and your word is truth. So, Father, would you help us, both proclaimer and hearer, would you grant us the grace we need now to be changed by what you have said. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I, uh, I sometimes struggle to know whether I should use the word who or whom in a sentence. Do you struggle with that at times? I mean, I think I intuitively know what to write. I, I think I intuitively know what to say. But I, I'm not sure I can explain the rules, and I'm sure Terry would be, and she had all those grammar rules, and sometimes I ask her grammatical questions. But that's, that said, I, I think we all agree who matters. For example, when your bride walks down the aisle and you lift her veil, you want to say, see the same woman before whom you, here we go, see that? Before whom you took a knee and said, will you marry me, right? You want that. And we just have to, you know, a biblical example of where who mattered was, you know, if you know, remember the story of, of, um, of Jacob. He committed to work seven years for Laban in, in exchange for, for his daughter, his beautiful daughter, Rachel. But in the morning, behold, it was Leah. He was tricked. Who matters? I often ask the questions, who, who really had the weak eyes there? But anyway, that's, a, that's an aside. When we ask the question who, what it implies is a, a distinction in persons, right? Who deals with persons? What deals with things, but who deals with persons? Now, you may be saying, what, where is he going? Now, looking at our Bible text, in this continuation of, of John's vision of the throne room in heaven, I think the question being answered for him, but also for us, is who? That's the question I see. Who? And what I want to do today is to take the answers from our Bible text as my headings for this message. I want to explore the significance of, of these verses in Revelation 5. So the answer to the question, who, here are my three answers from the text. In order, first of all, no one, and secondly, someone. And third, everyone. There we are. That may seem odd to you, but it was the only way I could figure out to how to organize this thing. Well, let's first talk about no one. No one. Now, clearly I'm not qualified to run for the presidency of the United States of America. And by today's standards, it would seem I'm probably too young, but that's another thing. <laughs> I'm not a citizen, that's primarily the reason. I'm not qualified to be a cardiologist, nor am I qualified to, to operate heavy equipment. I can't drive an 18-wheeler. I'm not skilled enough to play sports professionally. But that said, that there are plenty of people in this world who would be qualified for those jobs. But I want you to imagine with me an important role, uh, a job with an important task associated with it, something that had to be done, a task so monumentally important that the very, listen to me, the very character of God rested on the fulfillment of that task. 
As we look at our passage here in chapter 5, that's who we're looking for. And the stated question, is there anyone? Anyone? I feel like Ben Stein in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Anyone? Is there anyone? Well, it seems at first that there is, in fact, no one. No one is found worthy. Look at our Bible text again. John sees the one seated on the throne. There's no question about who this is. That throne was described in the last chapter. You can find it there in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. You see also what's surrounding the throne in chapter 4, verses 4 through 8. All of that is to depict the one who is holy, 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 by which we understand that this is the I am. This is Yahweh. This is the one who was and is and is to come. In the right hand of this one seated on the throne is a scroll. And the word there in the original is biblion, and that really is the word for book. But we're to understand that it is uh, like a first century rolled parchment or, or papyrus. And it was written both on, the, uh, on both sides uh, now, typically, a scroll would be only written on the, the inside and it would be rolled up. You wouldn't see what was on. Um, there would be nothing on the outside. But in this case, the scroll is written both within and without. And what I think it implies here is that the, the, the content of this scroll, this book, it's comprehensive. There is nothing missing. I think that's what we're meant to understand. And it's been sealed with seven seals. Now, what's in the scroll? Now, from this chapter, we, we don't know yet. We have to look, actually, at chapter 6 to find out. But if you look there, you'll see that there, it includes destruction. It includes death, implying judgment, but also vindication. Now, seven, as we've talked about before, when you see seven, often in the Bible and certainly in Revelation, seven is a symbolic number representing perfection or, or completeness. So there's seven seals. It's completely sealed. It is written on the inside and the outside. And this mighty angel is, shows up in this vision and asks the question, who is worthy to, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? Now, understand that those seals represent authority. If, you were, if, you, if a king or, or someone in high office sealed a letter, it would mean that that, that that thing that was written in there is as sure as the word of that individual. And there are seven seals. And, and who is worthy is the question to, to break that. Who, who has the authority to look into it? Now, that's not just gaze upon it. To look into it is, is to have the power of understanding. Like to understand the content of the scroll, but also how it should be applied, how it should be used. So this scroll can, cannot be opened by just anyone. The angel knows this, the answer to the question, who, who is worthy? No one. No one is worthy. Now, the apostle here, John, he's, he's meant to feel the weight of this. And he experiences in that moment a, a measure of grief. No angel, no messenger, not any of the elders depicted in this scene, not John, no one. Now, why would the scroll require someone who is worthy? Why would the scroll require someone who is worthy to open it? 
Well, of course, it has to do with the content. So you see, when the scroll is opened, and we'll see that in chapter 6, these judgments are activated. And then God's people, as a result, are assured of vindication. And I say vindication because, as we read earlier in, in Revelation, we see that the persecution that comes on those seven churches, they're being challenged in so many ways. And, and, and we might be, if we, were, if we were of them, and I think in some respects we are, for those experiencing persecution from the world, the hatred of God and his people, the hatred of his God's word, we long for that day when, when everything's made right. We all hold as believers to the vision and the, the certain hope. Not just a, an imagined vision, but, but this hope that we hold on to, that Christ will return and everyone will acknowledge him. But, but we wait for that day and we, we wonder sometimes how, how long, and that's the people of God longing for that vindication. But again, I said John's meant to feel the weight of it. He's meant to feel that the, this, this something's missing. And when no one is found to be worthy, he weeps. And it's not just he sheds a tear. It's, it is deep grief. He feels it. See, I, I take it that John here, because he, we're told he's in the Spirit, he's been moved by the Holy Spirit to feel what ought to be. And it would seem that he has some idea of the purpose and the content of the scroll. That judgment must happen. That if there is no judgment, ultimately there is no justice. And this is where I mentioned about the very character of God. If there is no justice, then ultimately the name of God is besmirched. If there is no justice, the very name of God is defamed. Now, I don't want to assume anything here, but I want to talk about why, why God would judge. And I think we intuitively know the answer, especially believers. The answer, of course, is sin. Why would God judge? Sin. And of course, it began with Adam's sin in the garden. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. What we earn, what we deserve for our sin is death. And if you follow the story in the Bible from that time, we, we see that God determined to restore what man had broken, right? Man, because of his own rebellion, broke that fellowship with God, and God determined to restore it. God provided a way back to him. And that way back was at the very heart of it for God's people, for the people that God set apart. That way back was simply believing God trusting in his promises to save. However that would work out, at the very heart of it was simply believing God. As Abraham, the example, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham said, God, whatever you want, whatever you're going to do, I, I believe it. And God said, you're righteous in my sight. But for those people that God set apart through that man Abraham. They were meant to be this light, this, this pointer to the rest of the nations. This is how you find your way to God. But what happened? Those who opposed God's people, meant to be a light, 
those who stood against God's law, those who stood against God's people, God said he would judge them. He would judge them. And we see that through, through the Old Testament. Even though the people of God, they fell short and they were ultimately disciplined. But those nations that, that railed against them, God ultimately said he would judge them. And, and, and to comfort the Israelites, this is what the Lord gave to Moses. He, he gave them this song to write it down and teach it to the Israelites. And here's just part of it to, to, to give you a sense. Part of that song Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. And we hear that. Sounds kind of harsh. Our culture, I think, seems to have a, a disdain just for the, even for the idea of objective justice. And I, all you have to do is look at the news, right? Maybe you've seen this. In some states, some cities, police don't even make arrests for certain kinds of thefts and, and drug offenses. And the prosecutors is using their own discretion or just simply choosing not even when somebody's legitimately arrested to, to bring charges. And, and I think it's a symptom of the fact that, that we live in a time that hates the idea of accountability and, and judgment. And we can see this, and perhaps you've heard Jesus' own words misused, thrown at, back at you. Judge not that you not be judged. Sorry, misquoted. Judge not that you be not judged. And I would suggest that it's even possible that as believers, sometimes when we see that guy, maybe a homeless guy holding the sign, judgment is nigh. We think, oh, come on. And the liberal theologians haven't helped us. They've kind of muddied the discussion. And maybe you've heard this too. Some hold to the idea that the God of the Old Testament, he's the God of judgment, and, and the God of the New Testament's God of love, right? It's, it's really a form of an old heresy, a, an old false teaching that was held. Maybe you've heard of them in the second century. They were called Marcionites, named after this guy, Marcion of Pontus. Anyway, he thought the God of the Old Testament was a different God than the God of the New Testament. And he taught people that, and people liked to believe it. And that, that idea seems to have stuck, right? Another version of that same heresy is that God the Father, he's the God of judgment. And, and Jesus, well, he's the, the softer, loving side, right? And I get it. I, I understand why these false ideas are attractive. We're not naturally inclined to want to be held accountable for our actions. We do not want to be judged. But the Bible makes it clear, absolutely clear, that judgment will happen. That's what the scroll and the seals represent. And these seals are the day of calamity for the enemy's of God and the enemies of God's people. 
But who? Who is worthy to open the seals? Well, of course, we read on and we, we find that that tension is, is broken. There is someone. There is someone. My second heading. Uh, it wasn't very long ago that I learned what goat is. I'm not talking about the domesticated creature of the bovine family of animals, but in fact, the greatest of all time. And so when people are talking about, is Michael Jordan or LeBron James the greatest basketball player of all time? In hockey, is it now Connor McDavid or Austin Matthews? And can we even compare them to Wayne Gretzky or Mario Lemieux or Bobby Orr? You don't know those names, I know, but hockey fans, we love those names. You know, we might describe the talents of these athletes as unique, inimitable, matchless, incomparable, Right? They're extraordinary in some way, but in a very narrow sense, right? But you all know this, as, as great as those athletes are, someone else is going to come along and be the new goat, the greatest of all time. Maybe the greatest of all time in this one thing, but really just for now, just for now. But here, John, he's looking well, he's, he's in the throne room in heaven. And as we consider this vision that he has, we're looking up to heaven. And that search for that, that one, the greatest of all time, the only one, the exclusive someone in heaven to open the scroll, break the seal, to find that infinitely worthy, unique, inimitable, com- incomparable someone that has been solved. And one of the elders says, you see in our text, says to John, weep no more. Put your tears away. And what he does, and that he gives this description of that someone, the only one. We see this in verse 5. This is none other, none other than the promised Messiah. And I want you to see this description of him. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So, if you're unfamiliar with this reference, I'll remind you where this comes from. The Lion of the Tribe of Judah. Lion of the Tribe of Judah. You can look back at Genesis 49.9, where Isaac, Isaac, the father, blessed, sorry, Jacob, I'm sorry, Jacob blessed, blessed his sons. And he blessed Judah uniquely, elevating above, above the other brothers and that, that blessing had messianic overtones. So he's the lion, this, this leader of the tribe of Judah. And then he, he goes on to describe him as the root, the root of David. That's interesting. But you know this, in a plant, the root is before the branch. The father in a lineage is before the offspring, of course. And yet, the Messiah here was descended from King David. We know that. And yet, somehow, before him. The one descended from David was before David. And what's being reinforced here through this description by the elder is that the coming of the Son of God, that was at the very heart of every messianic promise in the scriptures. And I'll remind you, he's the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. He's the offspring of Abraham, Genesis 2.18 and Galatians 3.16. He's the prophet like Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15. He's the greater son of David, Psalm 110.1. He is the Messiah, 
This is the one. This is the someone who is worthy. But just to reinforce it, after this description then, John sees in his vision an amazing symbol visually encompassing different accomplishments of the person of Christ. He sees this in his vision, this picture, a symbol encompassing these different aspects of the person of Christ. First of all, he sees as a lamb a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now you think of if you try to put all of these images together, a lamb standing, lambs don't stand, but this one is standing as though slain, yet not dead. Right? So it, it's it's a vision, right? It's it's symbolic. It need not be a thing in reality. And I, I was trying to think of some analogy. It's like French Impressionism in art, maybe. It captures an essence without, without showing the, the, the physicality. Jesus is a man. The Son of God took on human flesh. He still has that flesh. So what John sees is, is visually depicting something about him and his accomplishments. And, and I think in, in what, what John sees here in this vision is, is a reminder, really, of what what. John the Baptist said, remember, remember introducing Jesus, he cries out, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that, really an echo of Isaiah uh, chapter 53, like a lamb to the slaughter, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of his people. And so what John sees here is this, let's call it a gospel image, for lack of a better description. He sees a gospel image. The Son of God became the sacrificial lamb to bear the eternal consequence of sin for all who would believe in him. The Son of God in human flesh was crucified in a weakness that he voluntarily accepted. A lamb. They're not strong. A weakness that he voluntarily accepted but then was raised from the grave in power. And so there's more to this image, right? See, the, there's also power depicted in John's vision. As we've seen, this seven, the number seven, is symbolic of completion, perfection, right? So he sees as well in this seven horns. That horns represent power, so complete power. And then seven eyes, and we're told what they are. The seven spirits of God. There aren't seven Holy Spirits, but it's really the complete work of the Holy Spirit in concert with the Son, propagating this very gospel message, propagating and applying the word of God, awakening the people of God to faith in Christ, ultimately empowering the, the people of God to, to endure in faith and, and faithfulness, even, even through tribulation and, and hardship and death. Now, having this identified, this someone worthy, it's just a beautiful moment. Christ proceeds to take the scroll. Here is the someone. At this point, there's this ecstatic response from the living creatures and the, the elders that surround the throne. And they together declare what is true about the Son of God by both their posture, what they do physically, but also by what comes from their mouths, their declaration. First, their posture. We can see this in verse 8. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, 
Why the harps? Why the goals, the bowls, golden bowls full of incense? Why those? I, I think the harps are simply for accompanying this song that's going to happen, this new song that they're about to sing. But these golden bowls of incense, brothers and sisters in Christ, the, this is important for us because we're told that they are the prayers of the saints. Now you might wonder why. Why that imagery? Again, here in Revelation, as, as we move through this, we're going to see so much in imagery. And, and sometimes you can, you can understand it by looking back to the Old Testament. So here is one point of reference to make sense of this imagery, these golden bowls. In Exodus chapter 25 and 30, in the instructions around the tabernacle, there was, there was to be incense offered. It was a, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And so here, there's this attachment to that idea of, of worship that that incense actually represented way back then, the very prayers of God's people. And they're in golden bowls, right? And they're held by these, these elders, these creatures. The prayers of God's people, the prayers of the saints, the prayers of the set-apart ones, listen, are pleasing and precious to the Lord. And maybe, maybe these prayers are, I don't know, maybe a lament. How long, O oh Lord, like the psalmist says? Maybe they're just the, the, the collective longings. I don't know. We're not told. We're just told they're the prayers of the saints. But whatever they are, they're brought there in this picture by these elders. Now, we shouldn't get too mixed up of how they can hold the, hold the bowl and the harp and, and then bow down. It, it, again, it's, it's imagery, right? But, but brothers and sisters, what this should do is, I, I hope, motivate our prayers. I mean, we're all guilty of perfunctory prayers before God, I think. But, but when we pray, when we come before the Father... There's, there's nothing perfunctory about what he does with them. It's not like, yeah, 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 I'll get to that later. They're collected. Your prayers matter to God. So hopefully it motivates you to pray. Hopefully we'd be motivated collectively to pray because when we pray together, when you pray individually, when you pray in a small group, when you pray with another believer, when you pray, they're held. And God cherishes them. Well, not only does John see this posture of worship, but that's accompanied by this, this declaration. And this is in the form of a new song. We see this in verse 9. And, and we're told there why. Why the Lamb is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals and look into it. We're told why. Look at what it says. For you were slain. For. For you were slain. You're worthy. Why? Because. You could put that word in there. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Here is an important thing to understand. Jesus is glorified. Yes, he's humiliated in his suffering. But there's a, there's a, a heavenly glory in Jesus' sacrifice itself. I know sometimes as believers we think, well, well, Jesus suffered the humiliation and when he rose from the grave, that was his glory. Yes, that's glorious. 
But there's something glorious about Jesus' willing self-sacrifice. In fact, when Jesus prayed, before he was to go to the cross, he said, Father, glorify me. And anticipating the suffering. This is his glory. And this is what's being repeated in the throne room of heaven. The very glory of the Son of God is revealed in him suffering and dying in our place. And it's the means, the, 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 the means, the, the actual way in which he has ransomed his people. That is to say, he bought us out of slavery to sin. It is his death. And this picture is so beautiful. It is a, a people ransomed from, from every language group, every skin color, every social status from every time in history. And you can just imagine all of the different things that today people call you know, races and subgroups and whatever, social standings. All of it. People redeemed. That picture ultimately that will be around that throne on that day. People groups we'd never met. A glorious picture. And this people, a kingdom of people set apart as priests. This is to say offering continual worship and then stewarding all of the resources of creation. And ultimately then this picture at the end, returning people, returning to the very thing that Adam failed to do when he was placed in the Garden of Eden. That's the picture of the future. So this new song, this, this glorious declaration of the accomplishment of the Son of God, what that does then, it, it evokes this, this responsive praise from, from probably every single other heavenly messenger. And they can't contain themselves. You see what's going on here. Verse 11, myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. I mean, John's not counting. It's just like, a, it's, it's so many. Verse 12, worthy, and they're singing. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You know the last time we saw this kind of multitude of angels? Remember when that was? It was at the birth of Jesus. That, that announcement as seen by the shepherds in Luke 2. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus died to take the wrath of God for the sin of all those who would trust in him. And because of that, because he died and received in his own body the wrath of God, he is now worthy to mete out the wrath of God to all who do not believe. He took the wrath for all who believe, all who trust him. And now, having received that wrath, he meets out that wrath to all who have rejected him. Now, it's not a picture that we like to have of Jesus, but it's biblical. It's ominous, to be sure, but it's an essential truth. When we talk about Jesus to unbelievers, we... We rightly speak of him as the lamb who was slain. We rightly speak of him as savior. He died in your place. He took the wrath of God. But listen, that's not the whole story. He's returning to judge the living and the dead. And he will certainly do it. Now, in the meantime, 
till that day. The hope for all, the hope for all is still John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And listen to this. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. It wasn't a condemning mission when he took on human flesh but in order that the world would be saved through him. But the key is into the world. He did not, God did not send his son into the world. So Jesus' mission while in the world was to save. And he did that through his death and resurrection for all who would trust him. And that hope remains until Jesus returns, until the day that he takes the scroll and breaks its seals. That day is sure to come. That day of judgment is sure to come. We should not set this aside or think it's not important. The day of judgment will come for all who have rejected Christ. And the only reason it hasn't happened yet is that God is patient. He seeks the repentance of all he has called to himself. And I'll remind you what it says in 2 Peter. Do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness but it's patient with you, towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But here it is. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, unexpected, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That is, I think, the opening of the seals. So let me say this. If you have not done so, I'm pleading with you. Repent of your sin before God. Trust today in that someone. The someone that God sent. That someone is his one and only son. The one and only Jesus Christ. Well, the last question about who is everyone everyone now some things are so very basic so very self-evident they almost don't need to be told to do them and i think you'd agree with this there's a kind of built-in oughtness to those things for example parents you get this when you have children you nurture them you you provide for them you love them you ought to right do you need to be told love that baby it should be i think self-evident right well, something that, that ought to be is something that uh, makes sense, right? It just makes sense. It's, it's obvious. Something that is true. It agrees with, with the entirety of the created order. It's something beautiful and, and good. But when that thing that ought to be is absent, I think what we should feel is a sense of dissonance. I think we should feel that sense of something's not right. Something ought to be, it's not there. And I think somehow we have this sense that it needs to be made right. Now at the beginning of this part of John's vision of the throne room of heaven, we, we feel the necessity of opening the scroll, but finding no one worthy, then this weight, the importance of the scroll's contents, means there ought to be someone. The elders, one of the elders reveals that there is indeed someone, the Christ, who is worthy of all praise. But there's still a void. That is, or maybe, even at the same time as the very myriads of angels are giving praise to Christ. You see what happens that John then hears in his vision something that is 
never happened since man introduced sin into creation. Something that's never happened. He hears something that is not yet, but ought to be. Verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Every creature, that's everyone. Angels, living beings around the throne, cherubim, seraphim, humans, animals, fish somehow, creatures under the earth, and everyone, get this, everyone means demons too. And men and women who have blasphemed God right to their very graves. Those are consigned to hell. Every creature declaring blessing and honor and glory to the one who sits on the throne. How else can you read this? Every creature. No one is excluded from that. All at the same time, giving glory to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, the Christ, the Son of God. And that will continue forever and ever. Now at this point, the, to really cement the point, the elders agree and, and they give their amen, meaning truly, let it be so. And they once again fall down and worship. Now, that's what ought to be. But I think we'll agree. It hasn't happened yet. And we don't have to look very far to find that every day God's name is blasphemed in both action and word. And the Bible tells us why. People don't worship God as they ought. That's what it comes down to. People don't worship God as they ought. Rather, what they do is they give their ultimate worship to the things that are created, right? And what's that today? What do people, what do people worship most of all? Self. It came up in Sunday school this morning, adult Bible class. I said it's idolatry. Self-righteousness, self-worth, self-elevation. Self it's just idolatry. And, and I would say this, that self-worship is the reason for the scroll written on both sides. Self-worship invites, even demands, the full fury of the wrath of God. So uh, maybe, maybe, I'm not saying this for sure, but maybe the seals are kind of being opened in a sense. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, after that glorious declaration that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. Well, in verse 18, he begins this way. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Here it is. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and in their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and here it is, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So, 
Like I said, we can look around at every creature honoring the Lord hasn't happened yet. And I, and I take it, it hasn't happened because the judgments in the scroll have not been completed. But I do know this. For all who long for the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, for all who have put their faith in him, that day will be glorious. It will be the most glorious celebration of all time. It's what ought to be. And this truth that the Apostle Paul declares after he describes the beauty of Jesus self-humbling and becoming a man to die, you, you know this from Philippians 2, the reason for Jesus' exaltation is his humiliation. And every, every creature we're told will declare that truth. It says this, God has highly exalted him, referring to Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Here it is again. Every knee should bow. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue will confess, will say, will repeat the truth. Jesus Christ is Lord. Everybody will say it. No exceptions. And brothers and sisters, we are here this morning to prepare for that day, in part. We're here to give thanks and praise to God because by the death of Jesus, he redeemed us from slavery to sin that would have sucked you down to hell apart from Christ. We're here to say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. We're here to say, all glory to the Father and to the Lamb of God. We're here to bow down before Jesus Christ and declare his worship. We are here to help one another submit to him and represent him in the world. That's in part why we're here. And we do that because that's what ought to be. It ought to be. We look forward to that day when, when everyone, everywhere, every creature in heaven and on earth, we look forward to that day when all, are in agreement. And I think when we gather together like this and we declare those truths together, I'm sure that if we could see the elders in heaven, they would be adding their amen. So let me ask you, do you look forward? Do you look forward to being a part of the everyone? Is that what you want? Are you willingly, like, I can't wait to add my voice. There are lots of people in this world who aren't even paying attention. Listen, brothers and sisters, that we, we hold on to that day. If you're not, if you're not looking forward to being part of that everyone, if, if to you it's a horror that you may or you don't even believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Listen, here's what you need. You need someone. You need the only Christ to bear your sin because this is true. Either he will be your judge or he is your savior. That's it. Either your judge or savior. Inescapable truth. So I'm going to plead with you. Call out to him in faith today that he may be your savior.
And when that day comes, it will not be with horror at having seen the Son of God revealed, but with joy. Now, it's a crazy image. And I can't say I understand it all, right? I can't say I, I've grasped every aspect of this text. It's a fantastic vision, but it's for us. And we're told at the beginning of this book that when we read it, we're blessed. We don't know how God will work out every aspect of his plan, breaking the seals, unleashing the judgment. We don't know how that's going to work. But we do know this, that God will vindicate his own name. And we do know that God will vindicate his own people. There will be questions that remain unanswered until his return. I'm confident of that. But we have enough. And we said this together. And I'll end with this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? But here's the point. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's my prayer that all of us in this room are among the everyone, the everyone who look forward to the day of Christ's appearing, who are not horrified by his judgments. Father, when your name will be will be held up as holy and glorified before all creation. Father, keep us faithful until that day. Help us as, as your people not to, not to diminish your righteousness and your holiness and your wrath against sin. But Father, help us as your people to always be reminded of the immensity of your grace because Jesus is the Lamb who was slain. God, be gracious to us and bless us that we may delight in you. For the glory of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.